Let's pray um, as we approach God's word. God, it is uh, so good to be able to study your word, and um, as we do that this morning, we ask for your presence, that you would come teach us, um, reveal yourself to us through your word. Help us to be faithful, and um, Lord, that you would stir within us our hearts, uh, or within our hearts, um, just our affections uh, for you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it is great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark 13, Mark chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning, picking up from where we left off last week. Now, as you're opening up to Mark 13, I want to just share something with you uh, from, from my past week that, that kind of made me smile. Um, last week, I, I talked about how a lot of times Mark 13 is often mistakenly interpreted as uh, this passage that's all about the end of the world, and many people try to, to look at this passage and the corresponding passages in Matthew and Luke and, and try to find out ways um, why, how Jesus' words are, are being fulfilled in current events with current people, current nations, and that kind of stuff. And uh, wouldn't you know it, um, this past week I, I received some junk mail, and, and that's kind of exactly why I would describe it, some junk mail at the church from Canada, uh, where someone was trying to line up every single thing in Mark chapter 13. Uh, with what we're seeing right now um, uh, in, in 2020, and uh, they were actually arguing that the results of the election in November uh, will determine whether the world ends or not. And um, I, I don't want to make light of the importance of the nas- of national elections, uh, especially for us here in the United States. They're they're a good gift from God. Um, There's something that many uh, people throughout history, um, across the world, even today. Uh, we haven't received, they haven't received that ability to, to participate in the governance of their nation. And, and at the same time, as I don't want to make light of that, at the same time, I was really impressed. Because if this person was to be believed, then that meant that God's hands are tied. And whatever his plans from the, before the foundation of the world may be, America could force his hand in the next two months. And to me, I, I, was, I was just struck by the importance of this text and the importance of a right understanding of God's Word. And, and that's what we sought to do last week. That's what we're going to seek to do again this week. And so as we approach this time uh, together in God's Word, I just want to briefly remind ourselves of the structure of Mark 13. And then I want us to walk through the rest of the passage. And if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that there's three headings in the end of Mark 13, starting in verse 24. Um, and we're just going to go ahead and follow through those, those headings as well. But before I do that, um, before we do that, I just want to make um, two quick clarifications um, after last week. The first is this. Uh, the interpretation that I shared last week, that I preached last week, isn't the only orthodox view of this passage. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I still have questions about this passage as I, as I study it and as I read it. Now, I, I do think that this passage or that, that interpretation that I shared, the, the one I'm going to share this morning, uh, it makes the most sense. It's the most consistent. It's the most natural reading of the text. But there's still some parts of this text that are head scratchers for me that I, that I still have questions about. And, and there are many godly men and women throughout the ages, throughout church history, uh, who would disagree with me. So I, so I just want to clarify that from, from here at the very beginning, that while I may think that I'm right, and, and I don't say that pridefully, I, I just hopefully um, hopefully every time you, you want to hear a, a pastor um, preaching something that they, they think is right, right? Um, while I think that I'm right, I, I also want to say that there are other orthodox uh, interpretations of this passage. So that's the first clarification. The second clarification is this. If you're like me, uh, the structure of this passage is a whole lot easier to understand than the question why, all right? So 
we may understand that Jesus goes A, B, A, B, or, you know, talking about the temple in, in 70 AD and then talking about his return and then temple in 70 AD and then his return. We may be able to understand that, but, but that doesn't help us understand the question why. Why is Jesus doing that? And, and the, the answer is, um, is actually found in Matthew's account of this exact same event, um, this same uh, discourse between Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here we see that Matthew actually gives us a slightly different description of the two questions that the disciples ask Jesus. They don't just ask Jesus, when will these things occur? And what will be the sign that they're about to occur? But they actually say, when will these things occur? And what will be the sign of your coming or the sign of the end of the age? In other words, here's what's taking place. And Mark doesn't um, include this because I think it's gonna dis- he, he thinks it's going to distract from the, the main point. The, the disciples are making a really big assumption in this question. They are assuming that when Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed in Mark 13, verse 2, or Matthew 24, verse 2, the disciples think that is a catastrophe that is so big that it could only mean the end of the world. And so in their question to Jesus, they actually assume that, that these two things are related, and they ask, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And that obviously means that the end of the world has come, and so what is the sign that the world is ending? But Jesus has had to rebuke and correct his disciples many times in the past. He has referred to to ways that they don't quite understand God's word in the past. Think of of Peter in Mark chapter 8, verse 33. Jesus has to rebuke him because of his wrong understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus does the same thing here. Jesus separates these two events that the disciples thought would be the same thing. The destruction of the temple and the end of the world. He separates them and explains how they are distinct and how they are different. And that's why, at least partially, Jesus discusses both the end of the world, his second coming, as well as the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in a way that can be confusing to us, in a way that um, if we're not reading closely, we can, be, we can miss exactly what he is saying. Now, we could say, say more about that, but I think that's a relatively good segue into this morning's passage. Jesus has described the awfulness of the temple's destruction in, Math, in Mark 13 verses 5 through 23, and now he switches to his return. Notice verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven, in the heavens, will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now remember, to this point, Jesus has been answering his disciples' questions. In Mark 13, 2, Jesus declares the temple will be destroyed so completely that it means Jerusalem will be destroyed. The disciples are shocked, and so they respond in Mark chapter 13, verse 4, when and what sign? And Mark 13, 5 through 23, Jesus answers the sign or, or answers the disciples' question first by giving some non signs. These are not the signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. And then he gives the sign. And remember, that sign is the abomination of desolation. Now, 
Jesus switches topics, and he starts with a contrast, but, right? So, but contrasts what he has said before to what he is now about to talk about. And he also switches pronouns. And you're probably like, oh boy, here we go again. Last week, we talked about the importance of pronouns, uh, probably more than any of you wanted. Uh, We're going to do it again, so um, this is a good refresher from middle school, high school, uh, English classes about different types of pronouns. And so, what kind of pronoun is those, right? It's a pronoun, but what type of pronoun is it? And the answer is those is called a demonstrative pronoun. This, that, these, those are all demonstrative pronouns. And the word that you use, this is kind of second nature to us as as English speakers, that the, the word we use depends on whether it's singular or plural, but also on the distance of the object from us. So if I were to say, this stack of paper or these papers, it's because it's very close to me, but if there are papers over there, I would say those papers or that paper. There's a distance here between what is close to me, this, these, and what is far from me, that, or those. And so when Jesus says in verses 5 through 23, he's talking about these things, something that's close to him, but now he switches gears. And he begins to talk about those days, those things or that which is further off. This is something that is further off than what we have already been talking about. Now that seems relatively compelling, but in some way, we should also note that that Jesus' return is connected with the events of 5 through 23 and the destruction of the temple. Why? Because the only time marker, and this is important, The only time marker that Jesus gives for his second coming, for his return, is found in verse 24, when he says, after that tribulation. All right, yeah, after that tribulation is the only time marker that Jesus gives in Mark 13 to when he is going to return. And and that phrase, after that tribulation, is, is relatively clear that it's pointing back to the words of, of Mark 19, or 13, 19, and 20. And this is one of the reasons why people uh, will interpret Mark 13 all referring to something that is about to take place in the future, to this rebuilding of the temple, because the temple isn't in existence right now. And so that way it can be redestroyed, so that way Jesus' words can take place. And, and that's certainly possible, but I, I don't think it's, it's necessary, the necessary way of interpreting this text, or even the best way of understanding it. See, if you take a a quick read through Mark 13, you'll notice that Jesus' only words about his return and the timing are these words, after that tribulation. In fact, Jesus actually goes out of his way to make it very clear that no one, except for the Father, not even himself, knows when he will return. That's what the focus of verse 32 is. And this uncertainty, this is the focus of 32 through 37, that uncertainty of his return should motivate us to always be ready For his return. You don't know when he is going to come back, so you must stay awake. That's the focus of 32 through 37. But here's the thing, and this is going to get a little technical, but if after that tribulation isn't referring to something that has already happened, in other words, if it's not referring to uh, the events of, of 70 AD, but instead is referring to some future event, then Jesus's command to stay awake actually begins to lose some of its force. 
In fact, according to his own words in verse 24, he will not return at any moment because he has said that he will return after that tribulation. And if that tribulation has not happened yet, then Jesus will not return quite yet. So there is this separation here between the the words of of 5 through 23 and, and 24 through 27. But at the same time, it's important to see that they are connected because Jesus says that he will return after these events. After that tribulation, which, if we interpret it the way that I'm reading it, has already happened, which speaks to the urgency and the reality that Christ could return at any minute, which is the focus of his parable in 32 through 37. Now, in any case, Jesus tells us that when the Son of Man returns, the skies will cry out for the return of their Lord. He uses apocalyptic language from the Old Testament that describes the dreadful day of the Lord. I just consider a couple passages from Isaiah. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That's Isaiah 13. Isaiah 34 says something similar. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now don't get caught up in what specifically this is going to look like. I'll be the first to admit I have no idea what exactly this is going to look like. Jesus' point is actually far more powerful than him saying, well, this is what the weather is going to be like, or this is what the skies are going to look like in the end times. He's making an incredible claim. Because in those Old Testament passages, the ones I just read, as well as other passages in the Old Testament that talk about the, the skies, the heavens crying out, they're crying out in the last days because of the return of God. The Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of the heavens, is returning, which is what causes the skies to quake. Now, here's the important thing. Jesus is referring to his return. This is a very clear declaration from Jesus of who he is. In two days from this moment, in the gospel of Mark, two days from when Jesus is saying that he is going to end up on a cross, but that will not change who he is. He is a suffering servant, yes, but he will one day return as the conquering king. Now, some people interpret the words of 24 and 25 as a sign that Jesus' return is imminent. Uh, It's possible, but I think based off of the Old Testament descriptions that um, that we see, I I think this is just a part of Jesus' return. That's why I say that um, this is the heavens crying out. They're they're, they're groaning. Um, They're crying at, at their Lord's return. The one who created and formed them, they will cry out. When the creator returns to earth, their groaning for redemption will reach a fever pitch. And this is just a response to reality of Jesus' return. Now, months ago, and I don't expect you to remember this, but months ago, when we were going through Mark chapter 9, we reached this passage that um, that is called the, the transfiguration. It's this moment where Jesus is on this mountaintop with his disciples and at that, with a couple of his disciples, and for a brief moment, his true glory is revealed. And um, he's just, he's magnificent. The, the disciples are terrified at who Jesus is and what they're seeing. And what we see is that for Jesus' entire life, while he's walking the earth for these 30-some years, his glory has been veiled. It hasn't been obliterated. It's just been obscured. But there, on that mountaintop, for just a brief moment, the, the curtain is pulled back, and these disciples get to see Jesus for who he truly is, what he, what he actually is like. 
But because Jesus has always, or the rest of time, Jesus has been veiled, that's one of the reasons why people have rejected him. They couldn't fathom that their king would be in such a lowly state. Now we fast forward to Jesus' words on his return here, and we see that that's that's no longer the case. His, His glory will no longer be veiled. His beauty will no longer be obscured. It will be on full display. His his power will be for all to see. Acts chapter 1 tells us that he he will return just as he departed. He will return in the clouds. Matthew 24 actually tells us that that everyone on earth will see him as he returns. You see, at his first coming, virtually no one recognized who he truly was, and that will not at all be the case in his second coming. All of creation, every human, the entirety of the cosmos, even the skies, will recognize that the king who was on the cross is the king of glory. Of course, this could be a moment of sheer terror, and indeed, if, you read, if all you read is the shaking and the groaning of the heavens, that's exactly it. But Jesus tells us that it won't be a moment of sheer terror for his people. For those who are disciples, across the globe, he will gather together his people, so that he can dwell with them forever. You see, Jesus has called his disciples, those who are going to follow him, us as well, those who would follow him. He has called us to pick up our cross and follow him. Last week in Mark chapter 13, we saw that Jesus said that we will suffer many things for his sake, and this is on top of the brokenness of this world, all the pain, all the hurt, all the suffering that's not a result of persecution, it's just a result of living in a broken world. But when he returns, that will no longer be the case. And that's the message of 24 through 27. This first section on Jesus' return, the focus is very clear. The servant king will return for his suffering people. The servant king will return for his suffering people. This is a message of promise. If you are suffering, if you're facing hardship, whether it's chronic pain or whether it's criticism for a commitment to the gospel, whether it is illness or whether it is ill treatment for the sake of Jesus' name, he is coming back for you. And you will dwell with him in eternity in the fullness of his glory in endless joy forevermore. The servant king will return for his suffering people. That's the focus of, of 24 through 27. We, we transition to 28 through 31, and, and Jesus returns to this description of, of, Jesus, or of Jerusalem's destruction. If you're wondering why, um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't really know. Um, you can ask Jesus when you see him, but I do think the transition of the topics is relatively clear. First, Jesus uses the imagery of a, of a fig tree here in 28 through 31, He uses that in Mark 11 to talk about, to prophesy the destruction of the temple in in 70 AD. Second, verses 29 and 30, Jesus refers to these things, all these things, um, which is kind of a callback to his language, um, or the disciples' language in in verse 4, when they're talking about the temple's destruction. And as we soon see in verse 30, um, Jesus says that these things will come to pass before this generation passes away. And that's a really important um, point. I, I know, and, and I've read, and, and I've, um, at, in times I've, I've interpreted this differently, but as you look at, at Jesus' words, every single 
time in the Gospels, when Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, he is referring to his contemporaries. Every single time. And so it, I don't think that we can just say that, you know what, this, this means that the end times will occur in just one generation. But this is, that's a phrase, if Jesus were using it that way, it's, it's uncharacteristic of him. We don't have basis to interpret it that way. Jesus is referring to his contemporaries when he says that this generation will not pass away before all these things are accomplished. Anyway, let's, let's take a, a look at Jesus' words. He's, again, he's talking about the destruction of the temple here. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches or branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this passage because I think its message is pretty clear. Just as, as people are, about, are able to understand natural signs, uh, they should also understand the, the significance of Jesus' words. That's, that's really what Jesus is saying here. In other words, the only right response to Jesus isn't just to listen to what he says, but also to comprehend and therefore also respond to what he is saying. Um, that's something that we talked about a little last week. Now, to emphasize the importance of listening to his words, Jesus stresses the truthfulness of his words. He starts, uh, when he's, he's talking about these things, he, he starts with this phrase, truly, which um, is literally just the word amen, or another way of translating it instead of tr- truly is let it be so. And if you ever wonder why we say the word amen at the end of our prayers, it's, it's because uh, it's, it's supposed to be, whether we actually are cognitively thinking this or not, uh, is a different story, but it's supposed to be a declaration of our trust in God. It's a way of saying, you know, I've prayed all of these things, God, in Jesus' name, amen, or, or truly, or, or let them be so. In other words, I'm putting them in your hands. You are the only one who is able to bring these things about. Let it be so. And we say it at the end of our prayers because we are powerless to bring that about, right? Jesus does something different. In verse 30, he starts with truly. He starts with amen, not a let it be so, but because he's Jesus and he's starting that way, it's a declaration of it will be so. And sure enough, the events that he predicted came to pass in that exact same generation. In verse 31, Jesus doubles down on the surety of his words. It reminds me of the ways uh, that, that God talks about in the Old Testament when he's trying to put into words and, and help his people understand how utterly trustworthy his promises are. Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed times, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his thrones or on his throne. In other words, what God is saying in the Old Testament is that if the son ever stop shining, then you can begin to question whether or not I am going to keep my promises or not. The implication, of course, is every time, every day that you see the sun rise, it is a reminder, it should be a reminder to us that, hey, you know what, God is a promise-keeping God, that, that God is faithful. And Jesus goes even further than that and says, even if the heavens and the earth disappear, 
You can count on me. I just want to be honest with you, in a world of broken promises from presidents all the way down to closest relationships, whether that's an intentional broken promise or whether it is unintentional, it is earth-shattering good news to hear Jesus say this, right? When we live in this world of broken promises, broken relationships, to hear Jesus say, there is nothing more dependable than my words, That's a balm for our souls. And that's the the message of these few verses here, that there is nothing more dependable than Jesus' words. Jesus' promises, all of his promises will come to pass. There is nothing more dependable than that, and that is the best news that there is in our lives. Let's transition to the final section, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I began our time this morning by sharing this comical story about someone who sent me this junk mail this past week, arguing that the world was about to end. And it it is, it's it's probably easy for us to to look at things that extreme and just laugh and, and shake our heads. At the same time, I do think that Jesus has this important warning for all of us when we are overly preoccupied with the end of the world. Jesus explicitly says that knowing when the end is coming is not the point. What's more, it's impossible. Living in light of Jesus' return doesn't mean we spend all of our time trying to figure out when he will return. One author I, I read this past week put it in this helpful perspective for me. He said this, as Christians, we know God And we know that we are called to love him evermore. Apocalyptic speculation, or in other words, trying to figure out when the end will come, doesn't serve that end. Think think also about this. If we knew the time of the end, or if we knew that this or that world figure was a secret demon or the Antichrist or God's hidden agent, would we live differently? We shouldn't. It shouldn't take knowledge of the end we're finding in some figure the fulfillment of some obscure prophecy to motivate us to love God and neighbor, to cultivate the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And Jesus ends this chapter. He ends this chapter with a, a parable of our heart's posture. And it just has this one simple end, and that is simply for us to stay awake. Staying awake doesn't mean that we try to figure out or find out when Jesus is returning. In fact, Jesus in this parable makes it pretty clear that that's not the purpose. Our, our, our concern should not be with when he returns or the uncertainty of when he returns, but instead with being ready for his return. And this is such a, a powerful word picture here. It gives us this picture of, of what it means for us to be a faithful servant. The servant's heart, 
the, the faithful servant's heart isn't one that is, is so good at guessing when his master is going to return that he can just slough off until the last possible moment and then he can return to service so that way when the master arrives, he gives the appearance of one who's been faithful the entire time. No, the, the servant's heart isn't about, that servant's heart isn't about pleasing its master. That servant is, is only concerned with tricking the master into thinking that they have been faithful all along. They're, they're more concerned with the false appearance of faithfulness than they actually are with being faithful. Or what we saw a couple of weeks ago, this contrast between the scribe's heart, this false devotion and true devotion from the widow. Let me use another example, one that has occurred on more than one occasion at our house. Oftentimes, um, after we get the kids to bed, Crystal will run to the grocery store uh, real quick, and, and it's not uncommon for her to say on her way out the door, hey, hey Jordan, uh, can you grab the laundry when it's done, and can you fold it? And I say, sure. Uh, and then 45 minutes go by, and the next thing you know, I'm waking up to the sound of the garage door <laughs> opening up, and when I hear that, I sprint downstairs, I throw the laundry into a basket, I run upstairs, and I begin to sort and fold. Of course, here's the thing, uh, Crystal is not stupid when she walks into the house. She's no, she knows that there is no way that I should only be that far into folding laundry after how long she was gone. She knows I just started it, but being the kind soul that she is, she doesn't say anything. She just lets me live in my own delusion. Here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus' return, Jesus desires our faithfulness, not our appearance of faithfulness. And when we aren't living faithful right now, but say, hey, you know what? I'll get to it tomorrow. The only person that we're fooling is ourselves. Jesus can see through all of our pretenses, all of our excuses. He knows our desire oftentimes is to appear faithful rather than to actually be faithful. And here's the reality. Jesus has given us a charge to pick up our cross and to follow him. He has given us a task to bring the gospel to all nations. And this parable is a piercing question for us. Will the master find us faithful when he returns? Will Jesus find you faithful? Will he find me faithful? When he returns. That quote I read earlier is a revealing one, at least for me. I, I know in my head, I know that the knowledge of the end shouldn't change how I live today. But I'll be completely honest, if, if I knew that Jesus was returning in 24 hours or 48 hours, I would absolutely live differently. I would absolutely have different priorities. And, and in doing so and admitting that to you, I, I'm revealing that all too often I'm not awake. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not faithful. I'm not concerned with my master's business. What about you? Will the master find you faithful when he returns? You know, one of the most powerful things about this final section is that while it refers to 
being ready for Jesus' second coming, it also prepares us for the culmination of his first coming. The events of Mark 14 and 15 and 16. In fact, Mark 13, it may be about the future, but it prepares us for the final hours of Jesus' life in Mark 14 and 15. Let me explain. In Mark 13, 32 through 37, Jesus tells his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Okay, so remember those four names. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He tells them this parable. I want to read it again, but I want you to notice, and if you have the Bible notes um, in front of you, just notice the, the things that I have, I've, um, I've highlighted there. And I'm going to just try to emphasize them with how I say this, okay? So this is the parable we just read. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, so notice there the repetition of stay awake, the master coming, the master finding, and the charge not to sleep. He says this to four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Notice what takes place in the next chapter, just two days later, two nights later, with three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Literally, that is just stay awake. It's the exact same word. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch, stay awake, one hour? Watch, stay awake, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus' disciples are charged to stay awake and they're found wanting when their master returns. Consider also the watches of the night in this parable. In, in Mark 13, 32 through 37, it mentions the four watches of the night. Evening, midnight, roosters crow, morning. Three of these four are mentioned in, this, in, in Mark 14 and 15 in the context of Jesus' abandonment and his murder. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. Evening comes, 
and we see that not only will the disciples not stay awake, but they will betray Jesus. Mark 14 again, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Even Jesus' closest friend will not only fall asleep, but will deny him. We see this rejection not only from Jesus' disciples, but also from the religious leaders, those who are at the center of the Jewish religion. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Who stays awake? Who is ready for the master? Who stays faithful? No one. Not the religious leaders. Not the disciples. Not Jesus' closest friend. No one remains with the master. At Jesus' first coming, no one stayed awake. No one was faithful. And this text turns that question onto us. Am I awake? Will I remain faithful? Let's pray. Lord, as, as, we, uh, as we turn to the story of, of the crucifixion starting next week, Lord, I, I ask that we would not look at it simply as an exercise in historical accuracy, but that we would see how we, just like the disciples, just like the religious leaders, just like Peter, have failed to be faithful so many times. And Lord, I... I ask, not from a position of give me a second chance, but solely because of the mercy and grace that is given to us on the cross, that you take failed disciples and because of your mercy, you pick them up, you pick us up, and you, you dust us off, and you call us to follow you again. Help us to be a people 
who are awake, who don't just live for the appearance of being faithful, but God, that we would actually be faithful. So that whether you return later today or later this week or later this year or later in our lives or years down the road, God, help us to remain faithful. Help us to remain awake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.